And open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we will read through there and continue our study of what our calling is and what we're call, who we're called to be. And this is all part of a phase because I believe with all my heart that the focus that God has for us, and I've, I've been interesting, I've been hearing it in other places now. I've been hearing it coming from other people that teach in other churches and other, other ministries that God is focusing on this, this subject that we're talking about. And whether he is for others or not, I believe with all my heart he is for Faith Christian Center. And that's where our intention has to be. Paul writes these words starting in Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And that's really what we've been studying over these last few weeks. We first looked back at chapter 1 and chapter 2, really, and we looked at what our individual calling is. And the calling we saw is that we're, we were called before the foundation of the... You were chosen before the foundation of the world to be who you are in Christ. And we saw all those wonderful, amazing things that God says in chapter 1 of what He's done for us. And there's nothing in there that we are to do other than we are in this because in verse 13 we believe the word that we heard. But once you believe the word that he heard, you heard, all that God says in there, He activated on your behalf. And then we began several weeks ago to look at the other side of this calling because he goes on and talks here about this calling. He said, with which you were called with all lowliness, that's humility, gentleness, long-suffering, that's patience, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were all called in one hope of your calling. So the other aspect of this calling to which we've been called is this. It's we are called to be part of one body, to serve under one God and one Lord, and that union takes place through one spirit. And as we've mentioned over the last several weeks, notice the wording there. We are endeavor to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. That to endeavor to keep something means it's been given to you. Now you have to work to hold on to it. That means there is someone out there, some enemy out there trying to disrupt, disrupt or destroy the unity of the Spirit. But we've started out by having been given it, and now it's our responsibility to endeavor to keep it. That's part of our calling, is to keep who we've been called to be part of. And the focus of all this is where we're ultimately heading. Let's just read down through there. For there's one body, one spirit, verse 4, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now drop down to verse 11. And he himself gave some, what? Some of these gifts as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And why are they given to the church? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints... To do, so that the saints can do the work of the ministry. And we've established before that we're all saints. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. That doesn't mean there's a halo around your head. That doesn't mean you're qualified to be in a stained glass window somewhere. You notice we don't have stained glass windows here. Uh, it, what it means, the word saint is the Greek word that means you've been separated out apart. We've been separated from the world. You may not look any different from the world at this point just yet. But if you could see in the spirit realm, you're marked. Because the Spirit of God in you marks you as different from anyone else that does not have the Spirit of God in you. That's in Ephesians 1 verse 13. We've been marked by the Spirit of God, branded as if you were. So our responsibility is to do the work of the ministry. And that ministry or service, some translations do, is the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect, or the word actually means mature man, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. In other words, God's goal for your life is that you grow and mature until the place you come to the place where you literally reach the fullness of the maturity of Christ. You say, how could that be? Because you already have his nature on the inside of you. And all he's calling us to do is to grow up into whom we already are. Yes, amen. And we, a number of weeks ago, went back and we talked about some of, some of the wealthy families, that especially the, the Rockefeller family. And we saw how the, the founder of that, John D. Rockefeller, the one who had acquired all the wealth and, uh, and owned all of Standard Oil Company, 
trained his children to become responsible heirs of his inheritance. And he did it by having them become more aware of who they are, but not by putting them with silver spoons in their mouth. He had them go back and learn the lessons that he learned so that he, they could appreciate and develop in them the character that he had developed so that not only could he acquire the wealth, but he could now manage in a responsible way. Amen. He trained them so that they would be equipped to fulfill their calling. And the ministry gifts are given to the body of Christ so that we can do the work of the service so that we can all come to the place where we grow up into the fullness of who we're already called to be. Amen. That means God's plan for you is that you literally come to the place where you walk like Christ. That doesn't just mean you have the same gait that He had. That you conduct your life the way He conducted His life. That you talk like Him. Amen. That you think like Him. And the things that God has given us to do in this church, in many ways, and you'll find there are situations that come across your path in your life, and there are opportunities for you to grow up into Him and not handle those situations the way you always have. And the ability to do that differently is because God's already put His nature in you when you were born again. So the whole focus of Paul's letter here is to call us to walk like who we really are. That's all growing up is. Yeah. It's not to become something that you aren't. It's to begin to act like who you are. Oh, praise God. That's good. Right. Joe Tremblay got that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, part of that calling is to recognize who you are individually. But a very important part of that calling that we don't think off very often is who you have been made part of. Because you've not just been, you've been made part of Christ, but Christ is not just the exalted Savior who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ is the head of the church, which is His body. So to be in Christ means, to be, means that you are part of His body. And if you're part of his body, and I'm part of his body, and we're all part of his body, then guess what? We're also part of one another. And that's the part that we so often overlook. And that's what we've been talking about. And then we went back and looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we saw that Paul, in order to get this concept across to the Corinthian church, which was a very immature church. The gifts of the Spirit were flowing through them with great power, but, they were, but spiritually they were immature. And the result is, the evidence of it is there were divisions and factions among them. There were cliques. There were different groups that associated together based on their, what, what, they, what they had in common with one another. And that's human nature. We want to hang out with people that are like us. The problem is when you just hang out with people that are like you, you don't grow. Oh, that's good. It's when God puts you in positions where you've got to be around and associate with people that aren't like you, where you have to begin to overcome differences. Yes. And when you overcome the differences, because there are differences among us, but we saw there's the unity of the Spirit. Notice it's the unity of the Spirit. What we have in common with one another is not the fact that we're all Christians, although we do have that in common. What we in this room have in common is not just that we're all Christians, it is not just that we all attend and belong to Faith Christian Center, although we do have that in common. But if that's all you ever see, you're never really going to grow up to the fullness of who God's called you to be. If all you ever do is see yourself as an individual that belongs to Christ or an individual happens to be a Christian, you're going to miss your, the fullness of your calling. Amen. And the enemy works hard to keep us separated and divided. Amen. And it's, it's human nature. We want to you know, be around people we're comfortable around. But it, what we're comfortable around is people who tend to look like us and think like us and talk like us. In other words, it's the outer part of us that they tend to be the most, that we want to be the most comfortable with. And I don't just mean our color, it's just, you know, our background. And, you know, when you're around people that you can identify with more easily, we're just a little more comfortable. 
then you're around people that maybe speak a little differently or maybe have a different background. And now we, you know, we don't share some of those things, things in common. But what we do share in common is the Spirit of Christ who's in us. And so Paul is endeavoring to get this across to this church in Corinth that was still so spiritually immature. And the evidence of it, again, is there were factions and divisions among them. They thought they were more spiritual than Paul because they wouldn't let him back in the church he founded because he wasn't spiritual enough. One of the evidences of their immaturity is the way they conducted themselves when they gathered together to share the Lord's table together, which we did last week. And, and all they thought about was themselves. So the people that had much food brought in, they thought it was like a, a potluck. Except at least in a potluck, you share your food with others. They brought their food in and they sat in corners with themselves and they just ate their food with one another. Some of them even got drunk and there were other people there that didn't have any food at all. So they weren't taking regard for the, for the other parts of this body that they belonged to. They saw them as separate. They didn't identify with them. They didn't relate to them. And therefore, they didn't feel like they were part of each other. Therefore, if they just starve and if they're hungry and go home hungry, so what? It's not my problem. Imagine if God did that. Imagine if God just looked at things from the point of view of what he got out of it. You understand that when he got you and me, he didn't get the best end of the deal. Well, you may think he did. And I know there are people out there, I'm not saying here today, but there are people out there that think God got the good deal when they got him. That's because they have not yet seen the truth about themselves. So imagine if God looked at this the way we tend to look at it. And that's why God's challenging us to grow up and begin to think the way he thinks. He doesn't think about our relationship with him based on what he gets out of it. He thinks about our relationship with him on the basis of what we get out of it. Imagine if we actually had a church that did that. Imagine if we actually had a church that grew to the place where all we were concerned about was what everybody else got out of this and not us. Imagine that. But I believe with all my heart that's what God's calling us to come to. But it begins by having a revelation of who and what you are part of. And that was Paul's approach to this church. He didn't just blast in there. I mean, he blasted them a little bit in the beginning just to kind of awake them up. But his method of correcting them was to saying, wake up, realize who you are and what you're part of. And so in chapter 12, which we talked about last time and the time before, Paul goes into the saying, well, it's just like your human body. Your body has different parts of it. They're different members, he calls them, different parts of this body, and they look differently, and they're made differently. But those differences don't mean that they're not part of the same body. Imagine if your foot thought it was superior to your, ear lo- your ears. I mean, just the piece of flap on the side of your, of your head, not the inner ear. Imagine if your foot, because, you know, you, need your, you needed your foot, your feet to get here. But you need this flap of skin to hear what's being said. So your feet are resting right now because they've done their part to be here. So imagine if your ears say, well, I don't need to go there today because, you know, it's the feet that take me there. And, you know, I'm not that important. But that's what happens in the body of Christ, isn't it? We look at other parts and we kind of evaluate ourselves well, they're a little more spiritual than I am, or I'm a little more spiritual than they are. That means we don't see ourselves as part of the same body, do we? Oh, that's good. Anything that divides, any division that's able to get into your thinking, any of it, ought to tell you that how you see yourself. You still see yourself as separate and individual. I mean, I'm working on this too. And the differences that God's built into us are differences for function purposes, not a difference in our identity. And here's the, the, what happens. When we see ourselves as separate, then we become competitive with each other. Like children. You've got more than one child in a family. The, the tendency is they become competitive for their parents' favor. And so parents have to learn how to communicate to their children that they love them and accept them right where they are. So we've looked at this, and we've looked at the, the example that Paul uses of the human body to, to, to show them that just as your body has different parts and different members, yet it's one body. And you consider it one body because the image you have is this is one body, and it has different parts. So if I stub my toe, I stubbed my toe. It's not my big toe's fault, so it's got to suffer by itself. 
We all suffer because I stubbed my toe because my eyes weren't watching where we were going. So my toe suffers. But I don't say, well, it's too bad, I'm sorry, my eyes made a mistake. I made a mistake. I wasn't watching where I was going, and I stubbed my toe. And we saw that that's how Jesus sees us, because on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus gets a hold of the Apostle Paul, who's who's Saul at that time, because he's on his way. He has been persecuting the church. He's been arresting Christians and throwing them in jail. And he's on his way to Damascus to find every Christian he can find and arrest them and bring them out of their home, throw them in jail in Jerusalem. And on the way, a bright light knocks him off his horse at noontime. And a voice speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Saul was arresting different parts or different members of his body. And he took it personally because it was his body that was being persecuted. So we see that Jesus sees us this way. And now we're being called to see ourselves this way. Then we moved into another example that the Apostle Paul uses. It's in in, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. So go over there with me. And we'll move on today in this study. Ephesians chapter 5. Talking again about, about the unity that we are part of one body. And we are, God has brought us together as one. And he's calling us to, to, to walk together as one. But before we can do that, we have to begin to see ourselves as one. And having used the example of the human body, he's now moving into the example, another example with which we can identify. Well, we'll start in verse 21. Well, let's go, let's go to verse, um, verse 15. Well, let's go back. <laughs> let's go back to verse 14. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So he's getting their attention about something. See then that you walk circumspectly. That means with your eyes around you, aware of what's going on around you. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, that you not be drunk with wine, with which is dissipation or waste, but be filled with the Spirit. That actually says in the Greek, be being filled. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Submitting to one another in fear, or the word really means reverence, of God. And now he's going to tell us how to walk that out. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. And wives say, well, I can't submit to that guy. Well, that means you can't submit to the Lord. Because it's the Lord that said to submit. The issue of submission is not a matter of our own relationship with each other, whether it's earned or not. The issue of submission is an act of obedience to him. Because he's the one that said, do it. But submission does not mean that you put yourself down. Submission simply means that you put yourself underneath someone else's authority for a function purpose. It doesn't mean that God loves husbands more than wives, because you wait and you see what he gives him to do. See, people misunderstand this because, again, they see this through the eye of division. Oh, God loves men. He lifts them up higher than he does women. He puts women under. But if you read the Bible carefully, you find out God prefers women in many cases. But God's not treating the man and the woman different. They've got a different role and a different function. So he starts out, notice in verse 21, saying, submit to one another. So the way I submit to my wife is going to be a little different than the way she submits to me. But they're both submission. They're serving one another. See, he's not going to tell us husbands now have an exalted position of authority because that means you don't understand authority. Authority means responsibility. So the greater the authority, the greater the responsibility. 
So verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord. And now he's going to tell us how to do that. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Not everybody else's. Or not to other men. To your own husband. As unto the Lord. So the way you're submitted to your husband is a direct indication of how you're submitted to him. Don't, don't take a deep breath yet, men. <laughs> We're not finished. And husbands, <laughs> for the husband is the head of the wife. Don't get all bent out of shape by that. Head means protection or covering. Head means protection or covering. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ also, look at this, is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. You ready for this? And gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water of the word. And what I shared with you last week, that means the husband is responsible to Christ for his wife. The husband, I mean, when it dawned on me, he says, oh my Lord, where am I going to get it from? And then I looked in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which says, God is the head of Christ Christ is the head of man, and the man is the head of his wife. That means he's my head, so that I can be her head. That means leader. It doesn't mean I'm higher than her. It doesn't mean I'm more important than her. It's a description of role and function, and that's going to become very clear to us. But notice the example here. This is an, the teaching here is not about marriage although he's teaching things about marriage. But the focus here is about the relationship between Christ and his church, and, and, which is what we're talking about. And what he's using is marriage as a tangible example of this principle he's trying to teach us, that we are the body of Christ. So he's assuming an understanding of marriage that it's a unity, Unfortunately, we teach today in which that's a lost, almost a dying concept. So as Christ is the head of the church, so is the husband the head of the wife. And as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her, so the husband is to love his wife and give himself for her. Verse 27, that he, Christ, might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but he should be holy without blemish. There's going to come a day when I will present my wife to the Lord. And she will be a result of my leadership in my home. She will be a reflection to him of how well I've represented him to her. That's his pattern. Getting quiet in here. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as they love their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. In other words, he loves the church because it's his own body, therefore he nourishes it and he cherishes it. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And now he's going to bring them down to give them this understanding in a way they can understand it. For this reason, and he's quoting a verse we're going to look at. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. Therefore, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular love his own wife as himself, and let his wife see to it that she respects her husband. What he's saying is this. and I never saw it from this angle before until right now. The challenge that people have when they study these verses in terms of marriage 
all comes again from the failure to really understand what happens when you're married. And that's what he's teaching at the end. In Genesis chapter 2, and we looked at these verses last week, in Genesis chapter 2 is the story of the very first marriage. But it worked differently than any other marriage. Because what we saw last week is God took a man that he had created, Adam or Adam, and he made that Adam, that man in his image. And in that man were all the qualities that we consider masculine or male quality. You know, focused, rational, uh, 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 you know, strong, determined, all the ma- what we consider, you know, macho male testosterone qualities. But also in that man, and this is where we have to adjust our minds a little bit, were all of what we would consider female qualities. Intuitiveness, sensitivity, uh, emotion, nurturing, caring, all those qualities. Well, how could that? It has to be because if God made man in his image, where would those qualities have come from if they hadn't come out of God? Where would those qualities come from if all God put in that man were what we consider masculine qualities? Not only that, even some of God's name communicate that. We mentioned this last week. One of God's names, which just sounds, is El Shaddai. But that word in Hebrew means the many-breasted one. It's a nurturing, caring God. And so all of those qualities were in this first man. And God's the one that said to him, it's not good for him to be alone. It's not good for all those qualities to be in him. Because I believe personally that Adam was fat, dumb, and happy. Now he's fat or not. That's the expression. I mean, he was content. He didn't have to get along with anybody. We talked about that last week. And God said, that's not good. So God caused the deep sleep to fall upon him, and he took out a rib. Now, people misunderstood that. That word rib in Hebrew means side. In other words, he took half of him out. And he formed a new being with that half of him, which is what we would consider the female side. And God formed a new being, and now what you have at the end of this process is you have everything that was originally in him, half of it's now in another person with another will and another set of eyes. Another will. And he looks at her, and he says, I recognize you. Because I recognize your bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I recognize that's my flesh. I recognize that's my bone in you. In other words, although we're now two separate people, I recognize we're really one because you came out of me. Because okay, then Genesis goes on and says, that, therefore, because of that process, what's going to happen is a man shall leave his father and mother. Oh, there'd be a good message. <laughs> a man shall leave his mother. And not find another one. I heard some women there. (laughs) No, don't look around. (laughs) A man shall leave his father and mother. And the word in Hebrew means cling to or cleave or be joined to his wife. What happens is this. In the first marriage, God took all those qualities that were in one person and now separated them into two different people, but they're still one being, but they now have two wills, two sets of eyes, two sets of ears, and two set ways of looking at things and experiencing things. Every other marriage takes two individuals. She came from a small family in Ohio. We we talked about it last week. With two girls, everything was prim and proper. I came from a wild family of five boys in eastern Pennsylvania where dinner time was chaos. (laughs) So we have two different backgrounds, two different ways of looking. And I discovered, I talked to you about it last week, I discovered it took ten years for God to get this through me. She doesn't think like I do. And after complaining to God and praying and interceding and fasting and all kinds of things, he got through to me. And she won't because he made her to think differently. That shocked me. Why would you do that? Because I think so clearly and so rationally. (laughs) 
But I had to finally recognize he doesn't make mistakes. And that's what I'm literally telling you. That's what I went through. I didn't do all that fasting, but I mean, I literally was a shock to me. And now I realize I had to make some, oh, here's that word, adjustments. I now had to take these differences. And instead of seeing these differences as separating us, begin to see these differences as providing a greater way of looking at things. We mentioned this last week. The genius of God's design for your body is you have two eyes. And understand these two eyes don't see everything the same way. They see things from a slightly different angle. We've talked about this before. You have two ears. They hear things from a slightly different angle. But what your brain does with those two impulses is it takes those two different points of view and blends them together and gets depth of field. Those ears take those two different angles of hearing the same orchestra and blends them together and gives you stereophonic sound in your head. And her way of dealing with things, her intuitive, emotional, sensitivity side of things opens things up to me I never would would see by my rational, logical, determined, straight-head, focused, full-speed-ahead approach that I have. On the other hand, her emotional sensitivity, all of that would not get us through difficult times when you need to be able to go regardless of what you feel and just focus and go forward ahead. In other words, we need each other. But the key to that is understanding we're one. We're not in competition. That means whatever happens to her happens to me. Whatever happens to me happens to her. Whatever happens to us. So if if there are issues that we have to deal with, there are issues. It's not she's got a problem, Pastor. Go straighten her out. Or he's messed up, Pastor. Would you straighten him out? No. The two of you are messed up. The two of you have a problem because you're one being. And the reason the scriptures in Ephesians 5 trouble people is because they don't understand the very message that Paul is getting across there is that that husband and wife are one. And all he's describing are two different functions. Now here's where I want to go to now. And here's why I think this is so important. And here's the message I really want to draw out of this. You can be married, we'll be married 43 years this July. You can be married, in fact, we were married maybe 20 years before this began to dawn on me that we were one. That means we lived together as husband and wife, <clears throat> raising four kids, although, let's see, 20, yeah. We're raising four children, considering we had a successful marriage, and we did, I mean, we weren't, all along having no concept, we're one. People can live together as husband and wife under one roof for 50 years and more and just live as two individuals who happen to live in the same house, sleep in the same bed, produce the same children, own the same home, go on the same vacations, walk through their entire married life together and do it as two individuals who just happen to get along pretty well. And that's where the church is. So you can be joined to somebody and not know it. You can be one with somebody in a wonderful gift that God gives to you. And this is a, marriage is a gift from God. It is an institution that no man would think of. Adam didn't think of it. But God ordained it. Because out of that comes all kinds of opportunities to grow. Out of that comes all kinds of strength when you take two different people, make them one, and now they have to They have to flow together as one, not in spite of those differences, but using those differences. But just because that's what God's opportunities God's given you doesn't mean you've recognized and are walking in it. So the beginning really of restoring a marriage, the beginning of really of marital counseling is getting to recognize who they are. The the whole basis of the marriage ceremony I do is is it's literally entering into a covenant. And I want couples going into marriage to understand that they're not entering a partnership. They're entering a covenant. And by the nature of a covenant, you become one. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. If you don't know where Malachi is, you're probably not tithing. No, I won't say that. 
I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. If you find the Gospel of Matthew, turn left. I didn't say that. I did say it. Malachi. I can't find it. <laughs> it was there this morning. While you're finding it, I'm going to get a drink of water. That choked me up. We're going to look at how God sees marriage. Now, before I do this, let me say this. I'm aware that in this room, in the sound of my voice, there, there are a number of you out there who've been divorced. I'm not talking about you. Don't receive any condemnation from this. Any, this is not the point of this. Whatever's happened in the past, happened in the past. In some cases, there are cases where, and I'm not going to get into all that, where there may not be any choice in the matter. I'm not going to get into that. With some of you, it happened before you were saved. With some of you, you were new in Christ. But one of the things I am concerned about is that the divorce rate in the church, from what I understand, not this church, but in the church at large, is equal to or higher than the divorce rate in the world. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. And what I believe is wrong is two basic things. First of all, we don't understand what marriage is. And secondly, there's a lack of submission to the authority of God's word in the Lord. People do what they want to do. I don't understand how hard this is. It's too hard for me. In spite of what God says, it's too hard for me. And there may be situations where it is, but you're not necessarily the one to determine that. Because marriage is hard. It's work. And sometimes it's because we're lazy. And again, but I'm not talking about that. So please don't leave here. I understand. Whatever's gone, what, God forgives. Okay, so this is not about that. What I want you to see is what God says about marriage and what it is in his eyes. Uh, let's start in verse 10. <clears throat> Have we not all one father? <clears throat> now, this Malachi is a series. It's not a long chapter, not a long book. It's a letter written. It's a prophecy written. God's speaking to the church about some complaint. They've been complaining to him. And this is the, 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 the people of Israel. And they've been complaining to him, and God's answering why certain things have happened. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously? Look at this. Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously. That was one of the tribes of Israel, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves, and. He, Judah, has married the daughter of a foreign god. In other words, they were chasing after other gods. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet he who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. This is God talking to Israel. This is now God complaining to them. This is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with your tears. In other words, you're coming to me and you're crying about things and you're weeping and crying So he does, it's because he's he saying he does not regard our offering anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. And you say to me, back to God, for what reason don't you regard our offerings anymore? In other words, we're doing what we're supposed to do. We're, we're doing what we're supposed to do, but we're not seeing any blessings in our right, right lives. Why? We're com- and they're complaining to God. And he says, here's the answer. And he's talking here specifically financially. Here's the answer. Because the Lord has been the witness between you and the wife of your youth. That means God watches our marriage. He's been the witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you've dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife, look at this, by covenant. There was a practice in those days of sending a wife away. It's not just in those days, it's today too. And finding someone you like better. Seeing that wife as if she's kind of property and when I was a lawyer, I had some friends that were that also went through med- they went through medical school. So I went through law school, and as, as, the, as we came out, I came out of law school, and then they came out of medical school. There were cases I know of cases where a man, this man's wife, worked hard 
for him so he could go through medical school. When he comes out of medical school and then does his residency and all of that that took like six or seven years, he now looks at her and says, you look haggard and tired out. I think I'll find someone else. Why do you think she was haggard and tired out? Because she worked for you. Like a used car. I think I'll get a new model today. And God's saying, that's what you're doing. And he's upset at that. Because he says, you've dealt treacherously with the wife of your youth. And the reason he calls it treacherous is because you entered into a covenant with her that you're now breaking. And the whole point of this exercise we're going through is not so much for marriage. I'm not preaching about divorce. What I'm saying is this. God sees Marriage, as when you say, I do, he does. He joins you together as one. And when we break that unity, when we break that covenant, it affects God. Because we are now, now we're not dissolving a partnership or a corporation. We're taking something God has joined together as one and we're ripping it apart. And you cannot rip something apart without causing pain and discomfort. But he's saying here that pain and discomfort is not just to the people that were torn apart, it's to him. Because you see, when he joins you together, he's a participant in that covenant. There have been times that that's what held us together. Both of us have hit places where we said, God, I don't think I can do this anymore. You think we're just so perfect and sweet. (laughs) Where do you think we learned the things we've learned? But at times, both of us have had to stand, just stand and grit our teeth and say, God, you put us together, therefore you've got to show the way. You've got to show me how to do this. You've got to make a way. You've got to open my eyes. You've got to show me something. And he's been faithful to do that. That's why we're where we are today, in a better place than we've ever been before, by his grace and his leading. But we did that because we looked at him as part of this covenant that he formed. So God's involved in that covenant. God's involved in covenant. Covenant comes from God. And let's go on and look at it. Again, no condemnation. We're not talking about you. Because the Lord has witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you've dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them, did he not make them one, now talking about the original couple, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says, I hate divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. The garment there refers to a covering. Your garment is what covers and protects you. You can sit here comfortably today because of the garment that you have on. That garment that you're wearing, whether it's a suit or a dress or whatever it is you're wearing, that does several things. First of all, it provides protection to your body, warmth, protection to your body against the elements, but it also is part of your identity. That's why you work so hard at what you look like before you come in here. So that if suddenly your covering was removed, you're going to feel very exposed. And he says... What happens when you break covenant is the garment that has covered the two of you together suffers violence. Now, what's the point of all this, Pastor? What God is saying to them, because he's addressing this to the nation of Israel that was doing the same thing with God they were doing in their marriages. Because he said, Judah, you have chased after other gods. Numerous places in the Bible, God says that he entered into a marriage covenant with Israel. That means, and we'll talk about this down the road, that means he became one with them. And they broke that covenant by seeking after and relying upon 
other gods as their source of their security, their source of their welfare and of their protection. They gave their hearts to other things other than Jehovah as their God. James talks about this in chapter 4. He uses the example of marriage. He says, you become adulterers and adulteresses. Why? Because you're seeking after other things first above your God. You're seeking your comfort. You're seeking your security. You're seeking your welfare from the things of this world and not from the God who you're joined to. And the reason for this, the reason we do that is we do not understand that we're joined to him. We do not understand in a marriage the reason that's, that, that's why divorce is so common today because it's so easy to do. The government's made it so easy to do. The church has made it so easy to do. Why? Because it's like, just like getting married is like shopping for a new car. Except some people spend more time and research shopping for a new car You notice what the salesman did? Oh, we're not looking at cars this week. You know what the salesman do? Some of you may be car salesmen. You know, I, fig- I figured this out. They will not talk price with you until you've sat in the car and driven it. <laughs> A little side trip here. They want your senses and em- they want you to fall in love with the car, oh, before they talk to you about what it's going to cost. And we live in a society where people fall in love. Oh, I met the most wonderful. I fell in love. What do you know about? I don't know anything. I just, she's the most beautiful. He's the most wonderful. He's the answer to my dreams. Does he have a job? I don't know. He's wonderful. You need to meet him. In other words, I sat in the front seat and I like the smell of the new car you've ever had a new car before, you realize that smell goes away. (laughs) But the payments still are due. The dents come and the nicks come. And the gum wrappers are on the floor, you know, and and the payments are still due. In God's eyes, This is why Paul's using that example. Marriage is the joining of two different people together into a covenant by which the two now become one. And the prosperity of that marriage and the health of that marriage and the power of that marriage comes as those two individuals begin to recognize and function together as one. And the blessing of the church and the power of the church to do what we're called to do comes also as we begin to recognize not just that we've been made one with Him, that we've been made one with each other, that together we are His body in the earth today. And therefore it matters to him how we take care of each other. And how we take care of each other is based on how we see each other. And we're, the Spirit of God is calling us, calling us to begin to look at him and to look at each other differently. Begin to recognize that what happens to you happens to me because together we're part of his body. That for me to be envious or jealous of you is to be envious or jealous of his body of which I'm part of. That's why there's no place in his body for jealousy. There's no place in his body for envy and strife because that's competition. That means I see myself as separate instead of as part of one. And it's this unity but what binds us together, the unity of the Spirit we talked about last week, what binds us together is not what church we belong to. It's not even that we all belong to Christ. Because if we belong to Christ, then we are members of His body and individually members of each other. That's why Jesus, before He left, told His disciples, the way the world's now going to know about me 
is the way you get along and take care of each other. The world that's out there now, so much of the world has heard about Jesus. He's all over the TV and they've heard about the church and all kinds of things like that. But what they've not really seen from the church is this kind of unity and love. And with what's lying ahead, I don't know what it is. All I know this is God is bringing us to a place where he's teaching us to bind together. It's interesting because the early church had this concept because the Bible tells us that they came together and they shared everything that they needed. Some of them sold everything they had and just pulled their resources together. Does that mean that we're, that's what we're going to have to do? I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is the reason they did it, it was not because they had to. It just came out of them. Because when they saw a family in need, whatever they had, they gave. Because that family was them. They were one together. And we've been able to go along the way we are because we've lived in a country and lived in a situation where basically we have what we need. Oh, you may not have the car you want. You may not have the refrigerator you want. But we're all eating. We all clothes on our back. We all have transportation. So much of the world doesn't have those things. And we've seen some nations literally almost turned upside down, literally in a moment's time. And had plenty, many things now have nothing. One of the things that happened in the earthquake in Haiti is that people not only hit the poor, but it hit the rich. People who one moment had beautiful palatial estates and were way up in society suddenly had nothing. In a moment's time, they began to find out what's really important. We need each other more than we can begin to imagine. But more than that, he needs us to need each other. He said, the world's going to know what I'm like, not because they're going to see me come back. They're going to know what I'm like because they're going to see the way you relate to each other. Because what he says is, you're the, I'm the head, Christ, and you're the body. The head is seated at the right hand of the Father. The body is sitting here in Faith Christian Center. It's sitting over in Providence. It's sitting in Philadelphia, in, in Boston. It's sitting wherever the body of Christ is meeting today. And we are part of that body. And you are part of this body, which is part of his body. And the key is we have to begin to see that. Because as your image of who you are, you won't change beyond the image you have of who you are. If you're trying to lose weight, you've got to begin to see yourself as thin. If you're, trying to, if you're trying to develop strength, you've got to see yourself. You won't go beyond where you see yourself. And so God is calling us to a place where we begin to see ourselves as he already sees us. And we're going to need the Holy Spirit working in us to do that.